Bill's going to pray for me before we start. God, we lift up Paul today before he preaches and ask a special uh, anointing, if you will, for him, God, that he would be able to interpret the scripture for us, that we would leave this place knowing just how big your heart is and how wonderful it is, God, as Ezekiel cries it out from him, God, and listens to him. I pray that Paul would be able to explain that to us, that we might understand you better and love you more. But bless Paul as he does it. Please give him strength and courage. Help him to do it good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much. If you take your Bibles and turn to Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel 33 is kind of, we're getting to what would commentators call the second half of Ezekiel's ministry. And I use that term just for us, you know, kind of as, as people looking back at it, he wouldn't have seen it this way. Starting with verse 7 in chapter 33, my daughter's texting me. Bless you, you're right over there, I'll see you after church. Starting with verse 7 in chapter 33. Now, son of man, I am making you a watchman for the people of Israel. Therefore, listen to what I say and warn them for me. If I announce that some wicked people are sure to die, and if you fail to warn them about, their change, about changing their ways, then they will die in their sins, but I will hold you responsible for their deaths. But if you warn them to repent and they don't repent, they will die in their sins, but you will not be held responsible. Son of man, give the people of Israel this message. You are saying our sins are heavy upon us. We are wasting away. How can we survive? As surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of wicked people. I only want them to turn from their wicked ways so that they can live. Turn. Turn from your wickedness, O people of Israel. Why should you die? Son of man, give your people this message. The good works of righteous people will not save them if they turn to sin. Nor will the sins of evil people destroy them if they repent and turn, turn from their sins. When I tell righteous people that they will live, but then they sin, expecting their past righteousness to save them, then none of their good deeds will be remembered. I will destroy them for their sins. And suppose I tell some wicked people that they will surely die, but then they turn from their sins and do what is just and right. For instance, they might give back a borrower's pledge, return what they have stolen, and obey my life-giving laws, no longer doing what is evil. If they do this, then they will surely live and not die. None of their past sins will be brought up again, for they have done what is just and what is right, and they will surely live. Your people are saying, the Lord is not just, but it is they who are not just. For again, I say when righteous people turn to evil, they will die. But if wicked people turn from their wickedness and do what is just and right, they will live. O people of Israel, you're saying, the Lord is not just, but I will judge each of you according to your deeds. I don't know about you all, but I am a terrible person at assigning people characteristics based on my limited knowledge of them. I'm terrible about assigning people a character flaw, a general way that they live because of my interactions with them. And I want to share with you about a lady that I think has gone to be with Jesus so we can talk about her now. Her name is Miss Lloyd, and she was my trigonometry teacher in 12th grade. God bless her. If she's still alive, I'm just going to apologize right now. Um, I made the mistake of applying for early admissions to Appalachian, and I was in the Appalachian like end of September, early October. That's a terrible thing for a senior in high school to do, because from that moment on, you're like, 
It's all gravy. It doesn't matter. Whatever. Here I am. And so I roll into Trig, and Miss Lloyd's like, hey, you need to learn this. And I'm like, whatever, lady. And then I proceed to do in her class not what is called failing. Failing's when you get like a 70. I was rocking like 42s on stuff. And I just didn't care. And I perceived in her this loathing of me. And so she would just kind of like, I, I, you know, it's kind of like, Brooke, you got a 92, and Thomas, you got a 98, and Paul, you got a 42. You know, just kind of leave it on my, and I was just kind of like, hey, you know what? The feeling is mutual. I hate you too. And so we began to just have this tenuous hatred for one another. It was all one-sided, by the way. She didn't really hate me. But I perceived that she did. And so in my perception of her hatred and disdain for me, I just gave it right back to her. And then she began to send messages to my parents, to which I, I didn't give them. I signed my dad's name on them, which I was really good at doing by the time I was 18 years old. There's hope for you. Your kids, you know, there's hope for y'all. And I had this perception of her that she absolutely hated me. She had a disdainment, a loathing for me. And so it was so much easier for me to excuse not caring and not doing what I needed to do. I was like, she hates me. It doesn't really matter what I do. She hates me. It doesn't matter. She delights in flunking me. And there's a part of me that, I, you know, I was just kind of like, I bet she's at home. You know, she'd never laughed before in her entire life, probably. She, you know, she was just kind of, seemed to me like a miserable lady. And I bet she probably did, you know, take her husband as they were eating their TV dinners. And she was like, let me tell you about this kid Cummings in my class. I hate him. Until the very end of the year. And at the very end of the year, if you're a North Carolina public school student, I don't know if it's still the same way now, but you get to take this year-end exam, and it's almost like this, you know, the thief on the cross next to Jesus. You can just screw up a whole year and just repent right there, and everything's okay. I'm making light of that, but if you did okay, I made 100 on the year-end exam. There's grace for you all again, right? And I'm so, gracious, I'm so glad that I know gracious, kind math teachers now, like Christy Stevenson. But when I got my test back, she took it and she put it in my hand and she looked me in the eye and she was like, good job. I'm so glad. And at the time, I was still hard and I was like, you don't care. I know you're trying to send me to summer school. <clears throat> but it wasn't about like last year, really. That like I th thought, thought back and I was like, no, she really actually cared about me. That whole hatred, that whole disdain, that was a one-way thing. I superimposed it on her, and I used it as an excuse to not do well. And I was like, she just had it out for me. And here when we get to this, this part, we get to a different part of Ezekiel. And this part of Ezekiel is the part where God says, you think you know me. You think you have assigned to me these characteristics that you think I have. You've assigned to me this this." emotionality that you think I have because of the judgments that I brought on you. But Ezekiel, to this point, you have been telling people about what the movements of my hands are going to be. And so right up to this point, we've heard about the movements of, Eze of God's hands through Ezekiel, and we talked about, I'm going to bring these armies in to crush you. I'm going to bring these armies in to exile you. I'm bring these armies in to tear down the city, to tear down the temple, to burn it down, to leave no stone upon no stone. And now we get to the second part of Ezekiel's ministry where this is post-destruction. The destruction's happened. And so Ezekiel, you know, if, you, if he's prideful, he's feeling pretty good. He's like, yeah, everything I told you happened. But remember, the Lord shut his mouth, and he was not allowed to speak until one of the exiles from Jerusalem, where all the destruction happened, came and said, everything you said that was going to happen, happened. And then he was free to speak again. 
And now Ezekiel makes a different turn. And instead of sharing with the people what God's hands are going to do, he shares with the people the posture and condition and location of God's heart towards them. And so make sure that you don't miss verse 11. We're going to come to it again when we're talking about this. But verse 11 is the crux of this verse. Because for once now, he's not, Ezekiel's not saying, here's what God's hand's going to bring against you. Here's what God's going to raise up the sword. Here's how God's going to raise up the plague. Here's how God's going to raise up destruction. Now this time he says, I want you to see instead of what my hands are doing, what my heart is like. What my heart is like. And so the words turn or repent show up in this eight times. Eight times. So we've got to understand that we can't. That God is saying, don't let these judgments that I have passed upon you go to waste. Turn and repent. Turn and repent. And so again in this text, he says to him again, son of man, you're one of these people. I'm God, you're one of these people, and you're going to be a watchman. And a job of a watchman is to share with people inside a walled city. Everyone in this would have known what was going on if you watch Game of Thrones, these are like the night watch people, you know, that are on the night watch that are looking out. A job of a watchman is not to wait till the enemy is about to batter the door down, but far away to call out to the people within this walled city, they're coming. Make ready. And so in a spiritual way, he's saying, listen, if, if judgment's coming, I'm giving you time to repent and to turn. Turn back to me. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about repentance, and I know you're like, great, I love it. But hopefully, we'll kind of open up some places to you about that. So starting out here in verse 7, verse 7 is a reaffirmation of chapter 4. So verse 7 is a reaffirmation of chapter 4. He said to him in chapter 4 again, this is the second part of your ministry now. All the destruction that I said was going to happen has happened. Now in the second chapter, I'm reaffirming that you're still Israel's watchman. You're still Israel's watchman. And then verse 18, I mean chapter 18 is the same kind of sentiment that's going on here. So in verses 7, 8, and 9, God reaffirms and he says, listen, Ezekiel, you need to report to the people what I tell you. If they don't listen to you, that's on them. But if I tell you something and you don't report it to them, that's on you. So you need to be faithful as a watchman to tell them, and you need to tell them to repent. Now, the word to repent means to stop what you're doing and to turn, to literally turn. It's an act not just of the heart, but of the will. We'll get into that deeper here in just a minute. But then verse 10, verse 10 is the people's cry out, and 11 is the response to it. So make that kind of obvious, you know, verse 10, and then the next one's verse 11. So verse 10 is the people's call out, and verse 11 is God's response to it. And so in verse 10, he says to them, son of man, remember, you're one of these, so you're one of them, so be faithful to tell them you're one of them. I'm God. And he says, listen to what the people are saying. And the people are saying in verse 10, the burden of our sin is too much. We're wasting away under it. We're wasting away under the burden of sin. You and I here on the other side of this with the knowledge of the gospel can come and look at this verse and go, Romans 3.23, for the wages of sin are death. Of course they're wasting underneath the burden of their sin. The wages of it are death. It leads to death. And then what does Jesus say? Jesus says this in response to this. He says in response to this in Matthew 11.28. Here, here, why why do you labor under heavy loads? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is in response to this. And God's saying, I know it's heavy. I know it leads to death. I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm a merciful God. And so then, verse verse 11, here is this crux. And so God is saying, don't just look at the things of my hands. 
Verse 11, he's saying, not, don't look at what my hands are going to do. That's already happened. We're gonna, there, there's coming, by the way, there's coming, and it's a beautiful thing. There's going to be restoration that's coming. So but in verse 11, he says, now see my heart. And again, if you think this is like a new thing that God's saying, see my heart. I don't desire for evil people to, to, to die. That's not what I desire. Micah, 6, Micah 7, 18, Micah says, for I know that you are a gracious and patient God and that you delight in showing mercy. And so what you're hearing in verse 11 is the plea of a father's love. And so as we've heard about all these judgments are come, that are coming and now have come, you need to understand that all of these judgments are butted up against the merciful heart of God that wants people to turn that wants people to turn, that doesn't delight in their destruction. And so this is where Peter would, would reflect exactly on this through the lens of Christ. And in 2 Peter 3, 8 through 9, he says, don't mistake God's withholding back of judgment as somehow his lack of care about sin. For God is not being overly late in judging people, but he is giving them time to repent. And then verse 9, for God desires that all people come to a saving faith through his son, Jesus Christ. And this again is this window into the heart of God. Then we get verses 12 through 15. And verses 12 through 15, if you're, doing a, if you're doing a Bible study about this, you're like, whoa, hey, I thought Jesus died for our sins and he saved us and there's grace. And Remember, verses 12 through 15, we're looking in a pre-gospel lens through this text. We're looking in a pre-gospel lens through this text where people's righteousness is based on faith through their obedience to the law. Through the gospel, it is by faith through grace and Christ's obedience to the law and his death and sacrifice. But we're looking at it through a unique period of time. But in a sense, what Ezekiel is saying and what the Lord is saying through Ezekiel, it's the same sentiment as in chapter 18. So if you want to go back and kind of see the same thing, the Lord is saying, listen, I want to tell you something. Just because you did good in the past does not excuse any current evil that you're doing. You can't like store up good and then throw it all away and do evil now. But by the same token, he says, listen, but if you have been evil and you right now repent of your sins, I'm not going to hold that past sin against you. Now, some of y'all, if you've read the Old Testament or if you read the, some of the kind of tough things that the Lord has said in the Old Testament, you said, but didn't the Lord say, but I am, a, I am a righteous God and I will visit the sins of the children, of the fathers on the children. Isn't that how God works? Don't mistake the discipline of sins for the consequence of sins. We know that that's the way it is. Divorce is like that. Divorce is like that. It's this gift that keeps on giving, right? The, the mistakes of this, if you're a child of divorce, you know this, the, the mistakes of this virtue, I mean, that lack of virtue or whatever, are visited on you and then your children and so on. But God doesn't work that way in terms of his sins. Case in point, the promised land. What does he do? He punishes that generation that sinned coming out of Egypt, right? But when this gets to Caleb and Joshua's generation, and Moses doesn't get to go in, but Caleb and Joshua's generation gets to go in. Why? Because the sins of that former generation were visited and punished on that generation, and the new generation continues to go on. So he's like, don't mistake this too. I'm not in the business of like forever condemning you because of past sins, but neither do your past righteous things make up for the good and the bad that you're doing right now. So verse 16, now we read and we see through an incredible gospel lens. It's crazy, wonderful foreshadowing of the gospel. And this is the foreshadowing of the gospel. He says that what is just and right, and they will surely live. None of their past sins, and they will surely live. Now, does that mean that they're going to live forever, that they're going to become immortal? What does the word live in the context of that mean? It's a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual thing. 
And so this whole idea of the temple being gone, God's presence being gone, he is inviting them back to something that is incredibly intimate right now. And he's like, I have left the temple. The temple is destroyed. You think my presence is gone, but all you have to do is repent and turn to me, and we will live. There's, there's an understood we in this text. And so in the verses 17 through 20, 17 through 20, there's this great reversal that's going on. So the people are trying to take God and put him in the witness box or put him in the defendant box in the courtroom. And they're saying, God, you're not being fair to us. God, you're not being fair to us. God, we are standing in judgment of your commands. And so God turns and says to them, hey, listen up. Rather than standing in judgment of my commands, let's all agree that my commands are simple. And if you would obey them, they would lead to life. And so instead of you putting me in the witness box and asking whether I'm fair, I'm putting you in the witness box and saying, are my plans and are my commands not plain and simple and direct? If you would quit questioning them and simply obey them, you would see that I am good and that I desire for you to turn and for you to live. I've got two quick points for for you all today. The first one is this, that when we see God's heart for repentance... And we're not just talking about like what Kevin brought up right there. The first words that Christ, that Christ utters in his public ministry, repent for the kingdom of God is near. He says repent or turn eight times in this. We've got to remember as we look at this text and we look at repentance, we've got to remember that there is a difference between regret, remorse, and repentance. Now, if you want to read more about this, I will point you to Warren Wiersbe. He was kind of my discipler on this, and he's got even deeper to go than what we have time for this. Warren Wiersbe, incredible commentator, biblical guy, uh, truthful, truthful uh, biblical Bible teacher. But in verse 10, in verse 10, when we see verse 10, the Israelites are actually just, expre- just expressing regret. They're just expressing regret. And so they say, our sins are heavy upon us. We're wasting away. How can we survive? That's regret. You know what? That's regret. And you all know what regret is like in that, you know, kind of silly thing. Why did I eat the third chili dog at the crawdads game? Why do you regret that? You feel bad. What does it lead you to do? Nothing but complain. Nothing but complain. So they are complaining. They're expressing expressing regret. We express regret, but there's a difference between regret, there's a difference between remorse, and then also repentance. And so Ezekiel is saying to them, listen, regret is not enough remorse still leaves you out of God's will. Did you know that? Remorse leaves you out of God's will. He says that's why you must repent. And so we've got to break these three things down quickly. The first is regret is actually an act of the mind only. You do something, you regret it, and you're like, ugh, I shouldn't have done that. Ugh, I shouldn't have done that. Remorse is a little bit deeper, though. And most Christians and most people stop at remorse, and they're like, that was good enough. I had remorse. I'm remorseful. Isn't that good enough? I'm I'm remorseful about it. I'm remorseful. Regret is an act of the mind. Remorse is an act of the mind and the body. So I was sharing with HCA a few few weeks ago that when I was was in high school, I saw these kind of like breakdance size MC Hammer jeans at TJ Maxx. And I took my lawn mowing money and I bought them. And they were like, you could fit three people in the leg of these jeans. And they were also had a paisley pattern on them. That's eighth grade, eighth grade. And I showed up to school in them. Now, my mom, when I bought them, was like, are you sure about this? And I was like, mom, you know, what what do you know about style, mom? You wear, you know, pastels every day of the year. I I, I got out of the car, and I stood out, and literally, like, you know, if there had been, like, 
a bell timber inside this jeans that were going boom, boom when I got out. And I stood there in front of all my friends after my dad dropping me off or my mom dropping me off, not sure it was, and like just kind of like put my backpack on because I one-strapped it. All cool kids do. And I stood there and all my friends went, <laughs> and like, and you know, like you reach back for the door handle and my dad's gone and I'm like, I can't get back in the car and go. You got to bet that I went to the kitchen trash can and dug all the way through there for the TJ Maxx tag and receipt. Because in my remorse, so we call buyer's remorse, in my remorse, I was going to be like, I'm never wearing these again and I'm taking it back. That stops short of repentance. In that analogy, repentance is don't wear them again, take them back, and to go to my mom and say, you were right. I was wrong. Help me. But remorse typically is where we stop. But repentance, because remorse is an act of the mind and the body, so we're, we're convinced that, oh, that's enough. But repentance is an act of the mind and of the body and of the will. It's a movement. If you've been drifting, there's no will that's going on. But when you will to go a different direction, you go that way. It's, it's like putting an oar in the water after you've just been drifting. Or it's, or, it's, or it's when you've just been on, been on the boogie board, now it's, it's putting your feet down and it's going. It's not drifting anymore. And so we can't confuse remorse with repentance. And the two people that are good examples of that are Judas and Peter. Judas betrays Christ. He feels regret, which leads to remorse, and then he goes out and hangs himself. Jesus is also betrayed by Peter. Peter feels regret, feels remorse, but in his remorse, he repents and does what? Goes to Jesus, turns to Jesus. This is where we in our society have the biggest problem of the misunderstanding of the difference between regret, remorse, and repentance, and it's coming to the church. Because if you watch Dr. Phil or if you watch anybody else, remorse is enough, but it's not. Remorse is taking the poison that you've been drinking and going, this is bad, dropping it in the parking lot and standing there when poison control is 50 yards away. You've taken what you've done, you've said it's wrong, you've gotten rid of it, but you haven't gone to the thing that will heal you and change you. And Peter is the one that says, what I did was wrong, I'm not doing that anymore, and I turn. And Peter becomes the leader of the church in, in Jerusalem. Verse 11 is a reaction to verse 10. Verse 11 is a reaction for our 10, verse 10. And the people in verse 10 say, our sins are so heavy. In verse 11, Jesus says, God says, turn from them and look at my face. Turn from them and look at my face. I'm not taking pleasure in seeing these sins weigh on you and you perishing under them. Look at my face. You would see and you would turn and I would heal you. And if we look at Luke 13, 34, if you want to go back and look at Luke 13, 34 on your own, that's good. But Jesus says about Jerusalem, when he comes in Jerusalem, and he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, city that has killed my prophets and stoned the people that I've sent, how long have I ached to take you under my wings, but you would not come to me? What is that? They felt remorse, but they wouldn't repent. The fallacy that remorse is enough is that. It's a fallacy. We need not only freedom from our sin, but we need healing from our sin sickness. And get this, the Father is waiting because he delights in showing mercy. And then 
one more quick thing. Don't miss the ache of God's heart, the ache of God's heart because of his anger at our sin. Sometimes we, 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 we focus on the anger in the Old Testament and we forget the ache. So verse 11 reminds us there is this incredible great love that produces the greatest kind of anger. Is that not true? There is a great, great love that, that produces the greatest kind of anger. I've told this story before. Rob and Jeannie probably remember it. Um, but Daniel remembers it. This past couple weeks ago, I took a wrong turn on a hike, and we rolled a right straight into the biggest yellow jacket nest up on um, Sitting Bear Mountain. And we all both got stung a ton. But there was a time when my family and our kids were really little. We w- rolled up on one at... Um, uh, up there on uh, one of the creeks up in the mountains. And Molly and Hannah both got stung multiple, multiple times. And if you as a parent see your little child get stung, something raises up in you that you did not know was there. And so there, I look around the corner. We've all gotten stung. I see where the nest is, and they're just coming out of the ground. The internal Hulk smash in me starts coming up. I go over here, I get a rock about the size of this snare, this kick drum, not really, but in my mind it was that big, and I walk over to it, and as my family, as my witness, I get as close as I can to that thing, and I get right over where they're boiling up out of the ground, and I'm like, Hulk smash! You're like, that's not very pastoral. (laughs) I'm sorry, but there is a righteous kind of anger that only comes out of real love. Our culture intuitively knows this, but speaks double truths. Because our culture gets angry about things, and they say, we're angry about them because things aren't right. And yet, when they look at God and they say, what is God supposed to be like? God basically, essentially, is this like real sweet 88-year-old dude that doesn't get angry about anything, that just stands up there and says, like, oh, it's okay, I love you. There's a possibility that because we rarely see righteous anger, And most of the time that we see anger that is rooted in sin, we don't understand what righteous anger is because of the heart of God. But we crave it. We crave justice. We crave protection. We crave salvation. We crave that someone would be angry enough to run in there to the bank where someone is being held prisoner and break it up and rescue that person. We crave that in the movie. We crave that the bad guy would get it in the end. We crave those things. Where's that craving coming from? And see, the effect, the idea that we miss the ache of God's heart just simply just because we only focus on his anger, it has a twofold effect on Christians. The first thing is we dismiss God's merciful aching over our sin in favor of his disdain and embarrassment for us over our sin. We dismiss that he aches over our sin in favor of the fact that he just disdains us and loathes us over our sin. Well, guess what? Just like Mrs. Lloyd, if you think someone disdains and loathes you, where will you not go? To them. You're like, God loathes me. He loathes my sin. He loathes my shame. He loathes it. I can never go to him. He hates it. And in reality, in verse 11, God's saying, look at my heart. I delight in showing mercy. But the second place where Christians are deluded by this or the, the, the bad effect that it has on Christians is that we also, we also think if we, if we discount how desperately God desires people, then we look at the worst person that we know and we say, well, God surely loathes them and they could never come to God. So it has a twofold effect. We would never come to God because we think God disdains and loathes us. 
And secondly, no one else, especially someone that's really far gone, could come to God because God disdains and loathes them. And yet rarely does God swear in the Bible, but he swears in this verse. And what does he say? As surely as I live. What did you get in trouble when you're in middle school if you're like me? You walk in and your mom says, hey, you have any homework? And you're like, I swear I don't. She's like, are you sure? You say, I swear to God I don't have any homework. She's like, don't you swear to God. Well, God swears by himself. And nobody greater to swear by, and he swears by himself. He says, as surely as I live, my word is life. As surely as I live, I swear by me. And what does he swear? Does he swear that he hates sin? Does he swear that there's going to be hell to pay? Does he swear that none shall pass? No, what does, he, what does he swear? He swears, I only want to see the wicked turn and live. God wants the wicked to turn so that he can transform them and that they can live with him. Stop for just a minute. Who's the most wicked person that you know? Even if they turned from all their wickedness, would you want them to come then and live with you? That is the mercy of God. God wants the wicked. He wants them to become his son and daughters. So number one, rather than considering just the anger of God, consider the eyes of God and the heart of God. And two, invite even the farthest away to the Lord. Has that ever occurred to you? I don't know about y'all, but there was a guy that was one on one of uh, Hannah's soccer parents' dads. Every time he was at the game, I learned more cuss words that I'd never heard before. You know what never occurred to me? Invite him to church. Never occurred to me. You know why? He's too far away. He's too far away. God loathes that dude. Secretly, what that meant was, I loathe that guy. Come and look into the heart of the Lord. He says he delights in showing mercy. He does not delight in anyone suffering for their sins, but only wants them to repent and live. Repent and live. That's what this table is about today. When we come to the table of the Lord, we're coming and we're doing something that reminds us that the Lord God Almighty was so merciful that he did not say, you all cannot keep my law, and so therefore you all are all going to be in destruction for all eternity. But instead, he said, you all cannot keep my law, and because of my great mercy, I will give my son who has perfectly kept my law to be the payment and to stand in the place for you and for your sins. Let me pray for us, and then I'll ask our communion service to come down. I will ask also our first communion class, you guys can go ahead and just stand up and come on down. Either one of the tables that you want to. And we will be ready. Lord God, thank you so much for your gift of grace. Thank you that we can see your heart, Lord God, and that your heart is merciful. And that's not just some new revelation with the coming of Christ, Lord but God, that's who you are. And the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in unfailing love. And so, Jesus, we pray today as we come to take your blood and your body that we would realize that the mercy that you give us was at the cost of your justice. And, Lord God, the only reason that we have mercy is because it cost you and there was a justice and judgment to pay. And that justice and judgment was visited not on us but on Jesus Christ. 
And so, Lord God, may we ever only always celebrate the cross where our lives were met with mercy because of the judgment that was rained upon Christ. It's in your mighty name we pray. Amen.